Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley, and we are talking about the Criterion Cast favorites of 2017. This is our annual end of the year gala event with a star studded panel of experts who are going to illuminate and enlighten you with our uh, uh, most seriously studied and thoughtfully considered selections for what the best of the Criterion Collection had to offer. Well, let's say it a little bit more subjectively, our favorites, okay? We've been doing this now for, I think, eight years. And as the sort of elder statesman of this particular group, very pleased and proud to be able to host uh, this evening's conversation. Uh, we're here with five other guests besides myself. My name's David Blakesley. I am the host of the Criterion Reflections podcast and a longtime writer and contributor to the Criterion Cast website. And kind of standing in for Ryan, our uh, founder, our guru, our uh, just our, our great uh, friend who's kind of behind the scenes running things and keeping this website mm-hmm. up and going. He was not able to join us tonight, but uh, his influence and his uh, friendship is definitely a very heavy factor in keeping this whole ship afloat. But let's just go ahead and get right into our lineup tonight of guests. Uh, we're going to go kind of in order of relative uh, novelty in these Criterion Cast family. So I'm going to welcome our first guest, Jordan Esso. Jordan, you've been a guest on my podcast on six of the seven episodes I've published so far. Uh, but welcome to uh, this one here. This is kind of a special event, and we're really glad to have you join us and lend your perspective. How are you doing tonight? I'm great. I'm so glad to join you guys tonight, and I brought a lot of novelty with me, just in case we run out. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, Jordan, you want to say a quick thing about who you are, just for listeners who maybe haven't tuned in my show, but uh, maybe are wondering how this guy get on Criterion Cast anyway. Well, sure. I mean, I got on the shows because of you, David, because we had developed a sort of friendship over Facebook, etc. But uh, I'm an actor, writer, director, you know, general creative person putting work out there. And I have always just adored, you know, the self-education that's been available through the Criterion Collection. And I've always listened to this show. So uh, that's how I kind of came aboard. And I've also uh, been lucky enough to be on Aaron's show for an episode. And so, yes, Totally psyched to be part of the end-of-the-year wrap-up. Well, it's great to have a fresh voice in the mix. And next up is Arik Devins. He is our globe-spanning chronicler of all things pretty. <laughs> he is. So, yeah. so Arik, where are you nowadays anyways? It seems like every time I pop up your Instagram, you're in some other continent or some exotic part of the world. What's up? Yeah, it's been a crazy uh, seven months or so. I'm back home now. Uh, so back, back in Oakland, California. Yeah. Yay, Oakland, um, for a little while because I'm um, getting married in May. So, um, congratulations! Thank you very much. Pretty thank big you. development. Yeah, yeah. Hear that? And and it's good to be back with you. It's been a little while since you've uh, been in the podcast thing, but uh, definitely had to, glad to have you back on the crew here. It's true. I think I'm scheduled for a, a few episodes in the future of your show, but I haven't done it yet. Yeah, yeah, you're on the spreadsheet there, so we will <laughs> we'll be getting to it soon enough. All right, next up is Aaron West, a very familiar voice here on the Criterion Cast family, a host of uh, the Criterion Now, is pretty much your main jam these days. How you doing, Aaron? I'm great, uh, and I it, I just it just dawned on me when Jordan mentioned it that all of you guys have been on that show, so um, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, great. It was uh, the first year of it, and uh, got 40 to, 41 in the in the the can so far. So it's been fun. Almost a weekly thing. You've taken a few little breaks here and there, but definitely our pipeline for what's the latest buzz in the Criterion uh, universe there. So it's just cool. always. I'm not a creative <laughs> person like I'm like Jordan. <laughs> 
Well, you, you keep the information flowing. You've lined up some excellent guests. You've definitely had some pretty great scoops with uh, you know, Sean Baker, Alicia Malone, and, and other luminaries, as well as ordinary folks like the rest of us there. So good on you there. Uh, Trevor Barrett, my uh, longtime partner for the Eclipse viewer, is here. Trevor, good evening. Good evening, David. Good to be back. Yeah, yeah. We've done a little bit on the <laughs> Criterion Reflections again, and we have a, a little... Uh, uh, reunification, a little uh, strike up the band moment heading our yeah. way in January as the Eclipse series adds one more volume to its lineup there. <laughs> keep so, us busy. Uh, I'm glad. Yeah, we, we, will, we will squeeze it in sometime in uh, the latter half of January. And finally, Scott and I. Hello, Scott. You're a longtime contributor here. Good evening from Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good evening. It feels weird to be a longtime contributor. For when I moved to Los Angeles, I wasn't even part of the Criterion Cast family at all. And now, now you're all old friends, except for Jordan, who I'm sure <laughs> will be an old friend before long. Yeah, I'm a young friend. Make, practically neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, okay, so here's our format tonight. For, for longtime listeners, we have decided to dispense with our annual Blu-ray upgrade wish list episode, which I can hear the collective groans and sighs and sobs of the Criterion uh, fandom out there but uh, you know it just seems like that pool is shrinking every single year there are still some great films to be uh, wished for as far as blu-ray upgrades are concerned but we decided to streamline things a little bit so there may be a few uh, nominations and and uh, wishes uh, expressed as we get into it here but we're not going to have a separate standalone episode uh, this year we're going to do our best of and then we'll be back with our annual New Year's Day analysis uh, of the wacky cartoon that uh, they like to publish as the New Year rings in. So look for that in a couple of weeks or so. Uh, but we're just going to kind of start off with just kind of a random uh, roundtable here, kind of a miscellaneous best of 2017. What are some of the favorite standout events or some of the honorable mention runner-ups or perhaps just other developments within the larger criterion uh, universe out there. And so let's just get it started. Uh, Jordan, why don't you kind of tell us a little bit, what are some of your miscellaneous picks before we get into our top cover of the year, our favorite cover of Slash Package, and then our favorite top three selections of uh, the Criterion uh, roster of 2017. So give us your, your, your kind of miscellaneous picks and, and random observations here. Well, I guess at the top, I'd like to say that unlike several of you, I haven't yet delved into the 100 years of Olympic films. So I'd like to consider every answer I give tonight finishing with, oh, but probably just the Olympic box set. Um, <laughs> what is that line from Roman Juliet? I have bought the mansion of love, but not possessed it. Uh, so that is that is probably going to be like a huge favorite of mine. But I did kind of just eliminate it from consideration. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to. I think address the issue that Criterion had um, made a point of including more female filmmakers in the collection. Um, and I think it's, it's a difficult thing to address head on for me personally, because I'd rather just think of women as filmmakers, not female filmmakers, you know, like uh, Kirsten's uh, Johnston's film is camera person. It's not camera woman. It's not camera man. Um, but because Criterion, um, made a point of contextualizing their effort this way, saying that they were looking to add more female filmmakers into the fold. I'd just like to take a step back and look at this year and say, 
a great job. I mean, some of my favorite films, as we'll end up discovering, are by female filmmakers or about female characters. And I just think that they they took that mandate seriously without changing the way the collection functioned. And um, I would look forward to, you know, this this going forward is just the new standard of just taking female artists as seriously as male artists, even though in art history, uh, the standard has been, you know, quite slanted in a different direction. Um, I mean, we had uh, certain women. Uh, we had uh, the lure, Desert Hearts, uh, Jean Dillman upgrade, camera person, and then films focusing on females like uh Piano Teacher or Black Girl, all of which are incredible films. I haven't seen The Lure yet, so I'll hold off on saying that's incredible. It looks incredible, um, but the rest of them I like a whole bunch. And I think I just I'd pretty much like to leave it there. I know we want to get a kind of swift uh, conversation going. Um, I'd like to pass the mic. <laughs> we'll go ahead and do that. So, Arik, why don't you kind of weigh in? What was your kind of lasting impression of Criterion 2017? It was a good year. Uh, uh, that's a quote from somebody as well, I think. But um, I would say that uh, uh, specifically for this year, two things really uh, call out to me. One is that the return of upgrades, which we, I believe I, I uh, ranted at at length last year, and we were all kind of wondering what, what happened to them. Are they are they waiting? I think it ended up just being a, are they, you know, are they waiting for the 4K to see what's happening with that? But I, I'm guessing it just ended up being a situation where they just had a bunch of scheduling stuff. I mean, these things are done when they're done, and they ended up on the schedule where they did. But this year we got quite a few, and I specifically wanted to call out uh, Vampire and Le Samurai, just first of all because they're two of my favorite films, but also because they kept the um, covers intact, which were both great, and they kept the book that came with uh, Vampire and actually did a phenomenal job of upgrading from um, a DVD to a Blu-ray without really making me feel like I needed to keep the DVD or or, or feeling conflicted about that, which has not always been the case with um, with these upgrades. So I want to say, first of all, that I'm very, very happy that the upgrades are back. And then the second thing is that uh, this year I really uh, embraced Filmstruck a, a whole lot more, and, and um, I've really found it to be a, a nice companion. There's a lot of stuff on there that I don't think will ever be on disc, which is ten, tends to be how I approach it. But I've found myself uh, randomly watching just some really interesting things there, um, both Criterion and non-Criterion. Uh, specifically um, for me, the, probably the highlight film struck-wise this year was um, the two parts that they had of The Decline of Western Civilization, which was a series I'd always wanted to watch but never uh, actually saw. And uh, and it was really, really interesting and ridiculous in cases to uh, see those movies. And so just that kind of thing and short films and all that kind of stuff. So I feel like while I still have some quibbles about film struck, the apps, um, that platform has turned out to be way, way, way more uh, useful to me than I uh, anticipated it being uh, previously given that I am a completionist disc wise, much like uh, David. So yeah, that's, that's my 2017. Very cool. Uh, Aaron, why don't you pick it up from there? Sure. In fact, I can piggyback on both of those. Uh, so to uh, Jordan's point about female filmmakers, uh, there was uh, a Barry Jenkins interview with uh, Peter Becker from Criterion where they uh, spoke of active curation. And uh, so they talked about women filmmakers and minority filmmakers and uh, and also films from regions that we haven't uh, seen. And I think this year we've actually we've seen a lot of that active curation, them including or uh, filling those holes in the, the collection that they couldn't otherwise uh, uh, get or there wasn't rights or demand or interest or, or what have you. Um, so I think that's interesting. And uh, to Scott's point about, uh, I'm sorry, Scott, I'm mixing people up to Rx's point about the upgrades. 
it was a great upgrade uh, year, and I'll just add that uh, there were Laserdisc upgrades, and there were two in particular that I had a tough time uh, chopping off my top list, which were uh, Rebecca and Othello, both brilliant releases. And um, and I, I like that they're actually trying to uh, upgrade uh, Laserdiscs. Of course, um, there'll be more to come. Uh, and just on a personal level, I, I um, made a goal at the beginning of the year to watch all the Criterion films that came out, and that's actually more ambitious than... Um, than you would think, although the Olympic films messed everything up. But uh, all those aside, <laughs> I managed yes. all of them except for the uh, Idi Amin, which but will, that will be watched uh, by the end of the year. And I, I put them together in a uh, criterion list on Letterboxd that I've sort of ranked, but um, uh, it's kind of messy at the, at the moment. But still, it was fun. It's fun watching them. Oh, we'll, we'll put that link in the show notes, so definitely encourage people to check that out. Anything else? And that's it. Okay, we'll keep it rolling then. Hey, Trevor, what you got for us? Uh, what's your uh, takeaway from uh, the year in rever- in retrospective there? Similar to Arik and Aaron, uh, I definitely latched on to the abundance of upgrades, relative abundance at least. Um, I, and just for fun, I've ran a few statistics for folks. So back in 2015, there were 17 upgrades of old DVD titles. But things started to slow down quite a bit at the end of that year. And in 2016, there were only seven, and there were many long stretches in there where we had zero. And so things really were looking kind of bleak as far as potential upgrades at the end of 2016, especially since last year at this time, we had January 2017 announced, February 2017 announced, March 2017 announced, and there were no Blu-ray upgrades in that time period. And so I was, we, we were, I think, kind of worried and wondering where it was going, um, speculating. But then they started to to just come down the pipeline again, and we ended the year with another 12 upgrades. So um, a, a very nice uh, run at the end, which has continued into 2018. Uh, there are four just DVD to Blu-ray upgrades coming at the beginning of 2018 so far. So there are so many important films on DVD in the Criterion Collection that just kind of seem to languish on Barnes & Noble's shelves. <laughs> Every once in a while during a sale, I will go in and look at the DVD section, and they they have uh, Mr. Arcaden on DVD there, and it's got a dented corner, so I've never bought it. But every time I go in there, it's still there. It's the same box. It's the dented corner box that, you know, it's just there. And so it's nice to see them um, coming back in and hopefully will be an opportunity for many of us. But I guess in particular, people who never really got into DVD in the first place um, to start seeing some of these films that uh, are in the early days of Criterion Collection and hopefully will be will be presented again in a, in a very beautiful edition. Yeah, it does seem like they've been a lot more aggressive in terms of trying to reclaim the rights. Uh, Sid and Nancy, Silence of the Lambs, Blow Up. I mean, titles that you kind of thought were just mm-hmm. kind of lost, but now they're right back in and really nice, splendid new editions. So, yeah, they've, I don't know if maybe they've hired some new attorneys or <laughs> negotiators <laughs> or what, but uh, uh, they're they just the varying. Lost, uh, the varying uh, seas of the uh, of the home media market. I think you know they're they're getting opportunities that they just wouldn't have had a few years ago. With I think the you know in, in some ways the collapse of home media in general is beneficial to Criterion. Yeah, and, and studios knowing that a good Criterion edition will sell more product than what they, than they would can. get if they just put out a, an yeah, equally exactly. nice edition. So 
definitely the collectors are are having a voice. Scott, tell us a little bit about your impressions of the year behind us. Um, well, I can't offer much on the year as a whole because, as always, I only picked up you know about twenty or so releases throughout the year. So I'll leave that to you, completionists. I just want to call out a couple <laughs> of things. I want to echo uh, RX praise of Filmstruck, which tends to, I feel like be more bemoaned in inner criterion circles than celebrated, but I find quite a bit to celebrate. Uh, I think the standout film that I saw there this year was Jockervet's The Nun, which was absolutely incredible. I'm so glad that it was presented so well on Criterion's Filmstruck channel. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, just every time I need to watch something, there's plenty there to see. It's a good way to explore the collection for people like me who aren't completionists, um, and also a great way to just discover films and filmmakers that I wouldn't even consider watching otherwise through Filmstruck's kind of mainline programming. So yeah, I, I really think it's an incredible benefit. And I can't wait for pay, fork over another, uh, however much the year subscription is. And I remember because I don't even think about it. It's that good. It's a hundred um, bucks. It's a utility sure. bill, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's basically a utility at this point to me. So I don't even, don't even consider it. Uh, but I also want to call it, uh, since we don't have a special sub, uh, section for supplements this year, I want to call it the focus pulling supplement on Barry Linden which is such a specific thing mm-hmm. for Criterion to dedicate a supplement to, but is so informative and revealing of just how painstaking the craft of such a film like that is. And really any film, you know, Focus Polar is integral to us seeing anything that's happening on screen, but it's a job that's never really celebrated at all or discussed in depth. Um, but the way they kind of broke down how they organized the shoot uh, to keep everything in focus in the midst of this incredible technical demand of using so much candlelight lighting, was really illuminative, so to speak, uh, and informative, and I was really <laughs> yeah, glad that yeah. spotlighted it. Excellent. Okay, well, let me tell you about my uh, takeaways from 2017. Uh, there's kind of three points that I guess I've kind of sketched out here. Uh, one is just the interesting uh, infusion of classic Hollywood films. If you kind of tracked any trends in my new release reviews on Criterion Cast, you've kind of noticed that I've gravitated towards kind of those uh, classic 1930s, early 40s uh, gems that I guess in an earlier era were pretty much unattainable. Things like His Girl Friday, Mildred Pierce, Woman of the Year, The Philadelphia Story. Uh, this has been like the debut of people like Joan Crawford. Uh, you know, Catherine Hepburn's kind of gotten a little bit of a heightened profile here. Uh, just, you know, some some great uh, Hollywood gems, real classics, uh, TCM favorites, but not just releasing the films, but really pristine packaging and definitive editions of films that for some people are, are beloved often seen, I can memorize and, and recite each line type of classics and others that are maybe discoveries because of the presentation. Uh, but it's been really a delight to see that. I, I guess I just want to see a few more stars added. We need a Betty Davis vehicle and maybe Greta Garbo in the collection. So maybe we'll see something along those lines in 2018 or in the years to come. Uh, I also have been pretty impressed by Filmstruck. It's just been a really great source of, uh, you know, discovery for me, uh, Again, people who follow my Criterion Reflections podcast will note that a lot of films have been injected into my queue that I didn't even uh, expect to see. But things like uh, The Color of Pomegranates, The Sorrow and the Pity, uh, Inger Marbergman's The Right, a, a kind of a made-for-TV film, uh, Barbette Schroeder's More, All My Good Countrymen, uh, those are all films that I've... Uh, podcasted about and really enjoyed the discovery and and again none of them available on disc at this point they may never get the the wacky c on their cover 
in a physical media release, but really excellent uh, additions to the the, kind of the larger canon of Criterion films. And then uh, the Jim Henson shorts were a really wonderful treat, uh, way beyond the Muppets. I really enjoyed that. And I just love the ability to pop it up on my phone I, when I'm standing in line or even uh, riding in my car and, and just kind of listening to the soundtrack while I'm driving along. It's, it's just really nice to have uh, Criterion on the go. Um, the last thing, too, I'll just kind of comment on um, sort of the cultural context that we're living in in 2017. Obviously, this is the first year of the Trump presidency and and even titles like election uh, about a ruthless win at all cost politician and a man in authority who's obsessed with a younger woman. <laughs> uh, you know, Idi Amin Dada, the, the story of a narcissistic, delusional, dictatorial, conspiracy theory propagating authoritarian strongman and uh, being there, an intellectual lightweight perceived as a man of the people and the truth teller who's uh, propped up by fat cat moneybags uh, to do their bidding. Well, you know, those films have been around for a while, but they just seem to take on a different little <laughs> cultural weight in the uh, contemporary environment. And I I think that Criterion is doing their thing to, you know, inject a little uh, subversion and a little bit of a, a political message into the mix here. So uh, I appreciate uh even like, you know, like say something like Idi Amin Dada, that would have not been on my top 20 predictions of a Blu-ray upgrade. But I think there is a a time and place for a film like that to kind of resurface. And I think there is an interesting contrast with what was happening in Uganda in the early 70s with what's happening in other parts of the world. Uh, not just the USA, but uh, across Europe and other places uh, with the uh, kind of nascent authoritarianism that seems to be back in vogue, at least uh uh, in a political uh, sphere uh, in various nations of the world. So it's been a remarkable year, and I'm very intrigued to see uh, what uh, direction things go in as we turn the page and, and launch a new calendar. Is there a movie called Impeachment? Oh, just <laughs> <laughs> All the president's men, I suppose, might uh, find its way in the mix somewhere. That's, who's, that's who knows? My, on my upgrade list, just FYI. <laughs> David Lynch is uh, is rolling over in his grave at your comments about watching Criterion on your phone. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, sometimes, <laughs> yeah, that's that's okay. I didn't know David Lynch was dead. <laughs> he's, he's not, but you killed him. You killed him with your watching. Just now, okay. Well... <laughs> You know, one really great feature of Filmstruck on your phone, though, is at least on the iPhone X, they've managed to enable listening to a commentary track without running the screen. So you can oh, basically nice. just listen to commentary tracks like like podcasts. It's totally cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I've been longing for that kind of feature. I don't have an iPhone X, so I haven't quite sold me on it yet, Jordan, but that is food for thought. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get to our next segment then. We're making good time, and uh, we want to talk about our favorite covers slash packages. So for some of us, it might be just the artwork. It might be the overall package, the the booklet, the the box, the uh, you know the supplements as far as the visual aspects of the, the package are concerned. So uh, no strict rules. It's just what do you like and what do you want to say about it? So well, we'll head right back to the top of our list. Jordan, what is your favorite cover or packaging of 2017? I think it's it's cover and packaging for sure. I mean, the cover image is outstanding, but it's really in the way that the entire set has been put together that this gets my vote. And I'm going to give it to the Before Trilogy. Um, I know some of the individual covers for the three films were, I think, a little controversial. I personally hated them when I first saw them. 
but you saw they, them online, like in the digital yeah, presentation. And they, mm-hmm. they look different in person, but I think I also just, I changed my perspective on it. So the cover is this abstract for people who can't immediately like imagine it. The cover is this abstract, like overlapping circular welts of color. You got the, the red, orange, yellow, and, and so it's really, really simple, minimalist. And then inside you've got uh, what look like dime store paperback illustrations of Jesse and Celine. And at first I thought, well, that's a little cheesy. Uh, those films don't feel like that. And then I, I just started to think like that it's ironic, like this naivete of these jaded lovers that, and then, and then all of that like fragility of their idealized memories and the way they wish that these certain moments could last forever and the the changing clarity of their love. And I just started, I mean, I wept, <laughs> I wept when I, when I had them in my hands and I realized that that at least is what they meant to me. Um, and then it is the full treatment of the, you know, the really intelligent graphic design of the of the photos when when you open up the the individual digipacks, um, the booklet is it's a full booklet, staples and all, also just beautifully laid out, um, and that that sort of uh, those transitional elemental colors that are on the outside of the box and on the individual spines, on the pages of the booklet it fades, it goes from like the warm yellow orange colors to purple to to blue to um, back to white. So just outstanding. Um, just exactly what I hope for in something like this. Very nicely said. And, and that's a, that's a really impressive set. I'll have a few things to say about the films themselves, but yeah, anybody else. I mean, I know this was a set that generated some controversy and even sort of some bitterness and disappointment. I, I remember reading some pretty, pretty harsh comments from a few people who I know were were probably big fans of the film, but for whatever reason, just didn't feel the artwork uh, served or fulfilled what their expectations were. But I, I agree. I think it's a handsome package myself. I've definitely, you know, I never had a negative take on it necessarily. I, I'm usually pretty easygoing, but anybody else have any thoughts about that particular package? I will say I we should acknowledge my choice as well. Oh, oh go I'm ahead. sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to give him credit, Trevor. Michael Gillette is the illustrator. Excellent. Yeah, I was going right. to say, when I saw your choice, it looked pretty brave because there was such a backlash on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree. I always liked it, too. And I love the softness of it. And you, you, you spoke eloquently, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Eric, I see on our show notes uh, kind of cheat sheet here. You've got three titles. I'm going to ask you to make the hard call if you want. No, to yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no problem at all. Yeah. What do you, what do you um, say? So uh, there, there was quite a lot of nice packaging this year, um, certainly in some cases some of the best they've ever done. But I decided to go with uh, my favorite pure just cover image. And uh, for me, that's, um, that's Black Girl, the Osman Semben film. And I, I just I find the cover itself just incredibly striking. Um, it's one of those things where I knew nothing about the film and, and just looking at that, that cover really made me want to watch it and just drew me in. It's it, first of all, it's beautiful black and white photography, but I also think that, um, in, in 2017, it, although it shouldn't be, it is a statement that there is this proud, um, African woman on the cover of this movie. And, and I just think that it's, it's simple, but it, it accomplishes exactly what it needs to accomplish. And I, there's just something about her, 
her gaze, the way she's looking away. If you've seen the film, and I'll talk more about the film when we get into our, our favorite films, but uh, this cover, you know, I, I, I'm looking at a collage of all the covers of the year, and there are some nice ones, but this one just just absolutely stands out to me and just draws my attention so strongly. It's such a um, iconic, you know, uh, present image to me, and I, I just I absolutely love it. Very good. Hey, Aaron, let's talk about your favorite package then. Uh, one that I think probably might pop up in a lot of folks' lists. Uh, tell us about your selection. Yeah, I, I chose uh, Largent, or Largent. Uh, I don't know how you say that, but uh, Bresson's uh, cover. And yeah, uh, Criterion, I don't know why, but for a while they were not crediting cover artists. I had to dig through the disc and look through the uh, the booklet to, um, to find out who it was. And it's an artist named uh, Isabella Morowitz. So she uh, created this illustration, which is very Bressonian. It's very minimalistic. Uh, it fits with the color scheme of the of the film, and of course, Bresson and this film. Uh, there's going to be hands. That's that. It, it's cliche, but it is Bresson, and of course, money is at the heart of everything. So I, I just think it's uh, beautifully done. Uh, I think it's beautifully rendered, and uh, and yeah, and, and I think of all the covers, really, what what this was a tough call. But I think what really made the made the decision easier is just I think this one fits the tone of the film uh, better than many others, and um, and the tone is very distinct. Uh, Excellent, nice. All right, uh, Trevor, let's kind of kick it over your way. All right, my favorite package cover everything of the year is the Marseille trilogy. I loved it from the moment that I saw it when they when they first kind of teased the Janus poster. For, for the cover uh, that comes from the first movie, Marius. It shows Marius and Fanny sitting out there on, uh, you know, outside of the restaurant looking out toward the sea. Uh, Marius is staring at the sea and Fanny is looking at him. And you see Caesar standing over there on the side, just, just kind of there, <laughs> you know, kind of a, a, a very nice lofty presence. And the individual covers uh, on the discs that are inside uh, showcase each of them and I just I, I loved it I, I loved it before I saw the films so you know this isn't quite a situation where I loved the films and that kind of retroactively made me admire the cover images they kind of primed me for the films for the for the nice tone and the the whole thing that 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 was that's my favorite uh, favorite package and and uh, of all of the of the year it's interesting to see the central kind of focal point, the character with his back to the viewer. <laughs> you know, it's like a, kind of kind yeah. of a little bit of a reversal of expectations. But of course, that I that that excellent opening shot of right from the very early portion of the first film kind of puts it in context as to why they chose that particular image, uh, even down to the line of the fold of the cloth in the back of his shirt. There, uh, very very well done, and it is. It's it's a very a very rich package. You just kind of enjoy holding it and sliding each little. The digipack out of its case and and just uh, enjoying the uh, the craft and artistry that went into it. Great choice, Scott. How about your favorite cover? Uh, yeah, I went with the uh, late in the year release, Desert Hearts, which I don't think is on the whole one of Criterion's strongest uh, releases in terms of the supplements and such. But the movie is quite moving, and I think the packaging and the cover and the fold out leaflet kind of booklet, which we bemoan every year, but uh, is, is also well designed here. Everything kind of fits with everything that's so good about the film in terms of the wide open spaces and the sense of newly discovered freedom. And just the fact that the two women on the cover are kind of looking in opposite directions. You know, they're coming into the film from very different lifestyles and very different 
sets of experiences, uh, but they're still driving down the road together. And just uh, the colors are very lovely and the font is kind of nicely blending in with the clouds. And yeah, I really think the packaging kind of captured the essence of the film quite well. Yeah, the way the letters kind of fade into the clouds, kind of, uh, you know, kind of getting blown out a little bit there, a little bleached in the sun or, or blown by the wind. So, yeah, that, that's nice. It's not a cover that I honestly had really taken a close look at until just now. I just pulled it out of my stack here. It's like, yeah, that's very nicely done. Nice mm-hmm. doing. All right, I'm going to go ahead and choose mine. And my criteria this year was just which poster would I like to most put on my wall? <laughs> so I went with the, uh, and, and this is a, this is an artwork that is so desperately needed <laughs> in terms of the upgrade. This is the uh, new cover for Yazajiro Ozu's good morning. Uh, of course, those two kids at the center of the story are just completely charming, adorable little imps. And, and, uh, I love the illustration, of course, the little okay hand gesture, the red bowl, right prominent, I would definitely like to get that into a nice three feet by two feet or whatever uh, framed edition there. I don't think that's available in the Criterion store, unfortunately, but sign me up for when they make that available. I just, I just, I love the kind of how it captures the essence of that film. Of course, I'm a huge Ozu fan, and uh, this is one of those uh, worst ever kind of DVDs that needed to be revamped. And after years and years of pleading and waiting, we finally got our wish come true along with an eclipse series uh blu-ray upgrade from for i was born but but just as far as the overall cover is concerned i was really delighted when i saw that and it just stuck with me so that's my choice for the best cover of 2017 all right any final comments on artwork or packaging before we move into our top film selections guys I just won. I actually messed up and split mine, so I, I had yeah, that's fine. cover and package. Yeah. So my, of <laughs> sure. course, I think everybody has all already said Marseille trilogy is gorgeous, and um, and it was actually for packaging. It was a tough choice between that and the Olympic set, but I think the Olympic set is probably most likely I'll u- recycle it as luggage, whereas this is just <laughs> looks beautiful on the shelf. Uh, but actually, yes. the Olympic set does look nice, but uh, it is a little little big. It's 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 not a coffee table set. It's a coffee right. table, right? right exactly. <laughs> the, the Olympics book, though, is really. I mean, that is truly amazing. It's stunning. That yeah. book. That book is absolutely incredible. And I like the individual sleeves for the discs. I think that's a cool yeah. way of doing it, as opposed to the way they did, like with the Satoichi, where it falls out and stuff like that. So I died. The Olympic set. I just don't like the cover as much, but the Olympic set is really impressive. And I like that there's room that they didn't just wedge each sleeve in. Uh, that the, yeah, there's wiggle room. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's nice. No, it's it's a brilliant design. It, I mean, it's, it's a blockbuster. It's going to present some shelving challenges to uh, many <laughs> home media collectors. But uh, hey, it's the Olympics, man. You gotta you gotta deal. You gotta make some room. Okay, fellas, let's go ahead and get into our top three countdown. This is the main event here. We've kind of talked a little bit about some of the supplements and uh, some of the auxiliaries. We've talked about our packaging and our art. Let's talk about the movies. So, Jordan, where are you going to kick it over to you for the number three favorite film of Jordan Esso, released by Criterion in 2017? I think uh, I just want to preface it real quick by saying that my criteria that I ended up employing, because it's kind of tough to make these lists, was like films that really inspired me to want to go out and make work. 
you know, not just they were enjoyable, but just something that like when I was a kid and, you know, watching Star Wars movies, like and I had the toys, like I could never finish watching the movies. I wanted to go play with the toys. So in other words, like I wanted that same response from the films that I that I picked. And the first one, number three, is the upgrade of uh, Jean Dielman, uh 23K du Commerce, uh, 1080 Brussels uh, by Chantal Ackerman. And this is basically an identical release, I think, in terms of supplements from the DVD. But it is a really thorough uh, group of supplements. And the film is that, you know, legendary 200-minute experience of, um, you know, a woman in a very tight domestic space going through the rituals of her life. You know, the, thing, the small things she uses to organize herself and, and her son and then the, the, the you know, that that slow way in which the matter of factness of these things unravels and that that ritualistic exploration of domesticity become falls into question and and then in an interesting ways like infected by narrative um like when you look at ackerman's body of work i haven't seen all of it but um some of the earlier shorts are really more formal exercises pure and simple there's not not a twist involved and um they have one short on this release, um, I think her very first uh, film, and that one, without spoiling anything, ends in a twist. And this this mirrors that, and I I think it's interesting to think about as as uh, as someone who makes work, like what does that do to this experience? Because it succeeds as that formal exercise, you know, as that going through the motions and that cinema hypnosis that is achieved through just the textures and the silence and the concentration and the small spaces and the opening and closing of doors and the resetting of the of of the objects within the home um, and the resetting of her attitude. So it, it succeeds for me. Um, as just that experiment and then it becomes very strongly narratively driven at the end um and that's that those are really questions that i enjoy thinking about um did you guys were you guys excited to see this in high definition i was very excited to see it in high definition um i'd owned the dvd for years and it was one of those films that i think as with a lot of cinephiles i kind of imagined it before i saw it and then you see it and it's kind of exactly the film you imagined, but somehow that's totally satisfying. Um, and so it's one that's kind of stayed with me for a long time, but I never thought the DVD transfer was especially strong. And then I actually saw it on a 35 millimeter print earlier this year before the Blu-ray was announced. Um, and I found so many more dimensions to it than I ever noticed on blue or on DVD. And finally I saw those dimensions on film and then finally saw them again on, on the Blu-ray. So I really think this is a very necessary upgrade. I think the way that uh, Ackerman uh, focuses on different scenes is uh, there's a strategy and a detail there that is uncommon in most films and I don't think you see it at all on the DVD but the Blu-ray brings it out very uh, lovely in addition to all the colors and the definition and all that um, yeah it's a really worthwhile and very necessary upgrade yeah I noticed something I never saw before I don't know if you saw this um, but there's a freeze frame when she gets visitors, you know, in the kitchen, it, the, the film actually stops. Like you can tell because the film grain freezes. Did you pick up on that or did you? Oh, know I, that? I, no, I didn't at all. Now, I, now I'll have to watch it all again. Yeah, no, <laughs> please do. Do it tonight. Yeah. Yes. Right, right now. <laughs> all right. Well, let's go ahead and take a look at uh, Eric's number three. You've already kind of opened the door on that one. Why don't you continue to elaborate? Yeah, so uh, similarly to my cover, my third favorite film of the year was Osman Semben's Black Girl. Uh, I This was not the first Senegalese film in the collection. That's Tuki Buki in the first world uh, cinema project set. But this is the first sort of major 
African film from a major African director to be part of the collection, and it absolutely knocked my socks off. This is an extremely political film about something that and done and done in a way that I just you do not see that often, and certainly not from the era it was made. This is a a, a film about the. Um, evils of neo-colonial slavery it's about racism it's about spirituality it's about modernity traditions it's about um all of these things and it's also about a community that is so often underrepresented or used merely as sort of props uh, or background details or sort of just general um uh details as oh well look the stereotype of what we would think of as a bad thing and that is the internal life of this woman. So the, the film is uh, in very brief about a young a Senegalese woman who takes a, a job as a um, sort of maid for a French family in Dakar, uh, initially actually hired as a nanny and then sort of convinced into being almost a slave. And then the family takes her with them to France, a, a country where she does not speak the language and doesn't really uh, leave the house. And it is just an absolutely um, beautiful film and very interesting and full of depth. But in addition, you know, I like to, I love it when Criterion really fulfills its uh, role as a cinema, a film school in a box. And I think in, in this case, that's absolutely the case. There is a 4K restoration of Semben's first short film, which I also really, really recommend, Borum Sarit. There's interviews, there's, um, docu- there, and mainly an, an hour-long documentary all about Semben, where I learned so much about this filmmaker that I had never heard about, uh, and films in general from a place that I just don't, uh, have that much access to or um, information on. And, and I just, I treasure that when there's, as you'll, we'll see in my next pick, um, I really, really enjoy learning more about a part of the world I don't know much about or a situation I don't know uh, much about. And this film uh, absolutely delivered that in addition to being just an absolute, you know, knock your socks off quality film. The only quibble I have, and this is purely, I know why they do this. It's purely for for marketing purposes, but I really do not like the translation of the name uh, "Black Girl." The French title is um, uh, "La Noire de," which is more means like the the black woman of, or someone's black woman, or the black woman from. And I think that that tension in those meanings really has a lot to say about what the film is is actually about. And I know there's not really an easy way to do that in English. This is one of those situations where uh, the language is being used in a way that uh, is effective in that language and not necessarily in English, but uh, black girl just seems like the <laughs> sort of laziest possible translation. And, uh, and it's just kind of unfortunate, even, even if it was just black woman, uh, yeah. because really calling it black girl kind of undercuts the entire message of the film. Um, but yeah, it kind know. of diminishes the, the maturity and the, the poise and the dignity of the character. I mean, not that exactly. there's anything wrong with being a girl, but no, it just kind of, you know, it kind of, you know, like I say, it makes her smaller or at least in the title representation there. Yeah. But it is, uh, if you have not seen this one, I would imagine a lot of people haven't uh, checked it out just because it's kind of less, uh, from a, you know, less well-known perhaps this is really, really, really worth watching. And, and the disc is really worth it because of all of the uh, very, very, um, useful, uh, special features including ones that really made the film make a lot more sense to me uh, and allowed me to, um, I, I watched, I watched it again. Well, for one thing, just as an example, um, the entire film is in French, but the woman herself is actually thinking in, in Wolof and, and knowing that, uh, really changes how you watch the film. I was a little confused at first and, and finding that out really, really, I went back and watched it. I watched it a few times and that really changed my understanding of the film on a pretty basic level. So yeah, I, I just 
heartily recommend it, as I do with all of these choices, of course. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, in some of the uh, kind of world cinema snob circles, <laughs> I'll say with, <laughs> with affection, you know, the lack of inclusion of a Semben film for, for years was actually kind of used as a knock against Criterion because they were mm -hmm. so Euro and Japanese-centric and, and, you know, all of that. And, you know, there's always those rights issues and restoration and best quality print and all of that. But I think Criterion really did knock it out with this one. They they really did try to get a, a quality representation, and you know, no matter what, Semben is never going to, you know, you know, ring the registers as far as you know bringing in the income that some of the, you know, the Lynch or some of the more popular type of uh, offerings uh, will do. But I, I I think they've known Semben for a long time, and they were just looking for the right moment to get him in, and they did that, and I think they succeeded quite marvelously. And I hope they add more. I mean, just last thought on that is there's a lot of great films by him that they mm -hmm. kind of tease in the special features, and I really hope we get more of them. Yeah, Satyajit uh, Ray is kind of in that same camp, although Ray is probably a little bit more known to the Western world. But yes, yeah, that yeah. same type of thing to really broaden the uh, inclusion of international voices. Yes, sir. All right. Well, let's go ahead. Uh, I was just going to echo yeah. praise for that film really quick. But I'll, you know. Arik is absolutely right on all those points, including how great those supplements are in fleshing out the conversation about, you know, uh, female black identity in Senegal, but also, you know, uh, post-colonialism. But it's also so beautifully lensed, like there's mm -hmm. like a repeated brilliant use of the sky where you just got this almost naked composition of all this negative space and use of pattern. It's it's visually quite stunning. And I had no idea when I when I viewed it for the first time that it was going to be that visually great. Well, Aaron, let's let you continue the conversation. Well, yes. <laughs> Sorry, Aaron. As a matter of, no, it's fine. Actually, that was great. Uh, as, as a matter of fact, my number three is also a black girl, and I agree pretty much uh, categorically, uh, categorically with uh, everything uh, Arik and uh, and uh, Jordan said here. Um, I'll, I'll also add a couple things I like is that it's short, <laughs> and I, it's <laughs> they they make a lot of uh, a little bit of running time. Uh, it's it is beautiful. The, the transfer is just gorgeous, and uh, and for for such an old black and white transfer to really get set, such depth, I, I I just I was just blown away by it. Um, I, I think I've also mentioned on, on our podcast that my uh, my wife teaches some post colonial classes. So personally, it was one that I could enjoy watching with her, and she was also riveted by it. And uh, and, and actually, it's a perfect classroom length too. I think she'll, I, I hope she'll she'll teach it. Um, and then, uh, so really, I can't add a whole. Well, I will say that I am a, a huge fan of Sam Ben, and I I think um, some of his films, uh, like Zala, is a, a, a example of one that I think I would like to see come to the Criterion. And of course, he's he's a watershed African uh, cinema filmmaker. Um, and so he has a number of films that would, would fit great. So I, th I think he plays into that active curation that uh, Becker was talking about that I referenced er earlier. And I think they would get more of his if they can. Um, and I think he would have uh, many great selections. But I'm, I'm happy this is the starting point. If there's no more Sam Ben, then as Arik said, this this, this is, has enough to be the Sam Ben film. But, uh, but I hope there's more from, uh, from him and from elsewhere in Africa. Very nice. All right, Trevor, let's kind of get you in the mix here. Uh, what is your number three of the year? Oh, well, I almost feel feel bad putting this one here after all that great, eloquent talk about the importance of Black Girl and all that it's saying about culture. 
I'm kind of taking us to the gaudy uh, European culture of the 18th century. Uh, my third favorite release is uh, Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. It's a film that I've always really enjoyed, and I, I like Kubrick an awful lot. But there's something about watching it on Blu-ray, and I'd never watched the Warner Brothers Blu-ray. I understand that's maybe not a ton of difference other than the aspect ratio. But uh, other than that, I understand that it looked pretty good. But finally seeing this on Blu-ray and all of the supplements, this is a two-disc set. So you've got the movie on one disc and then all the supplements on another. It was just a wonderful experience to dig into all of, like Scott said earlier, all of the technique gone into making this film. Um, but also just the some of the details around the film itself. It was just a, a very lavish, lush thing to dig into. It's it's a beautiful, beautifully shot film, and it's also just a, a, a kind of an enigmatic film for me. I like looking at it to try and figure out what it's saying about humanity, about uh, Barry Lyndon's character himself. As we watch him go through the years, Kind of at first looking like he might be on a hero's journey and, you know, we might not like where all that takes him and all the things that he does along the way. But it's it's just one of one of those films that has always kind of been been there for me. But this edition was just a joy to really, really dig into. And and I, I spent a good week just excited to come home and watch another supplement. Well, the Kubrick fan bases out there cheering. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, this this is a popular pick. Uh, uh, definitely <laughs> one that uh, kind of shot through the roof. People have been anticipating this for a while, and it's a great selection. And I think the yeah, translation just... is uh, "White Boy." Actually, for that film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also want to echo the praise for uh, Barry Lyndon. It's uh, it didn't quite make my list, but it's been my favorite Kubrick film as long as I've known it to exist which i first saw it back in college um and i will say in fact for those out there who might own the warner brothers blu-ray and haven't picked up this yet i i think it's a pretty significant difference um the warner brothers blu-ray i never had a huge problem with but uh the candlelit scenes especially are just breathtaking and criterion's new transfer um and i think it really makes a, a pretty sizable difference so it's well worth picking up well scott let's keep you rolling here let's give us uh, your number three pick for the year Yes, uh, my number three, I was going back and forth between a lot of different films, but I ultimately settled on uh, Ozu's Good Morning, um, which was a film that I, it was the very first Ozu film I saw actually back in college as well, um, and didn't really connect with it then, took me a while to warm to Ozu, had to had to get some years on me, but in, within the last couple of years, I've really fallen into a rhythm with him, and revisiting this film was just a blast, it's so funny and so engaging, and so vibrant especially in the new transfer which is just quite breathtaking to be honest um and cartoons packed on the whole i mean david you already talked about the cover very well uh but they really just reflect the film terribly well the supplements uh the interview with david boardwell he has always been a great champion of ozu and his belief that uh, ozu is the greatest director ever lived he makes a very compelling defense of that position um and then maybe I know I spotlighted a different supplement earlier, but maybe my favorite supplement of the year, if only for its uh, uh, title alone, is Transcendental Style and Flatulence. Uh, <laughs> David Cairn's uh, video essay about Ozu's use of humor, which I'd never really thought about just how much bathroom humor there is in uh, Ozu and how funny he keeps it, uh, even if, I, I don't know. I mean, I like myself some bathroom humor, so I guess I should defer to those who don't naturally take to it, but I feel like he structures those kind of jokes uh, very well, and there are 
plenty of them in Good Morning. Um, and then also getting, as David, you also mentioned, uh, I Was Born But in High Definition is a very great treat. Mm-hmm. And then the fragment of A Straightforward Boy, uh, the until last year lost uh, film by Ozu, and still largely lost. It's only a fragment of it. But inter- interestingly, I actually went to Japan last fall, and the day or two before I arrived in Kyoto, they were showing at the Kyoto Film Festival this very fragment. They're premiering it. And I was like, oh, no, I've, I've missed this by mere days. How great it would be to perfectly intersect with this on a trip that I'm you know, unlikely to take again anytime soon. So it was a real blast to get to see that presented here on the disc and now everyone can see it which is really great it's a fun little segment um you know kind of hard to piece together the whole plot but you get some good jokes in there you get a eye into kind of ozu's early development and really only three years between that and i was born but you can see how much he was growing leaps and bounds as a filmmaker and then certainly getting up to good morning which is uh david borwell talks about as one of his great films and i think he makes a very good defense of it for it it's uh really engaging and really distinct within Ozu's sometimes too familiar filmography. Yeah. And especially in that last phase of his career where, you know, some of the films get you know pretty deep and, and, and kind of heavy, but this one really is kind of a nice light touch. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it almost is a, a flat out comedy and it's, it's quite beloved for that very reason. All right, I'll take it over to my number three, which uh, I guess one of the most recent things I've published on the site is uh, my kind of uh, comparison review of the new Monterey Pop, uh, Complete Monterey Pop Festival edition that Criterion released earlier this month. And I said in that review that if this was a brand new release, uh, the Monterey Pop Festival would be my number one of the year. Uh, but it's been around. It's been around in Blu-ray. There's a few nice additions there. But, uh, you know, overall, this to me is just kind of a, a reissue, a 50th anniversary commemorative thing with a few very critical and very much appreciated extra bits thrown in there. But along that same line, I've chosen the uh, festival film. Uh, this is a, a kind of a music documentary that to me was a real wonderful surprise. Uh, this was kind of a the missing piece, kind of a foundation for what Criterion was doing in uh, its kind of ongoing uh, documentary coverage of the emergence of the uh, classic American counterculture of the 1960s and and on into uh, even you know roots of it into this present day. Uh, of course, they've had Monterey Pop for a while. They've had. Uh, Gimme Shelter, The Rolling Stones at Altamont, uh, Don't Look Back, the Bob Dylan documentary from a few years ago. Uh, even The Beatles' Hard Day's Night kind of fits into that same general scheme of how music and culture and, and, and youth and, and, and to a certain extent politics mixed in to kind of give a new outlet for expression for so many people. Um, I did not really know a whole lot about festival. I think I'd heard about it. Uh, I certainly knew about the Newport Folk Festival and, and what it was. And uh, that, that Dylan had appeared there and Joan Baez and Peter Paul and Mary and, and uh, uh, Pete Seeger and, and you know, all these, you know, Johnny Cash, all these, all these giant figures of, of that scene. But I really just emotionally connected with this film in a pretty deep way. And, of course, I had a great chance to talk about it with Aaron and Matt and the music episode for Criterion Now. So I won't reiterate a lot of my comments there. But uh, I guess my my top three picks were all kind of films that I just really emotionally connected with that really I just deeply enjoyed the experience of living with these films for a period of time, watching them over and over again and just really letting them inhabit me. And and this here is just such a, a beautiful uh 
indication of kind of the transformation that was happening. You know, young men were growing out their hair and women were kind of uh, going without makeup and people were just kind of speaking truth and from the heart and with sincerity and with passion. And, uh, and at the time, you know, uh, there were a lot of crappy things going on in the society and they were voices that stood against that, even when the, you know, the majority and, and the, the mainstream kind of didn't recognize what was going on or even looked down upon them. And so I do draw a fair amount of inspiration from these films and, and, and even just the music itself is just so much a part of my, my youth and childhood. I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of this music, you know, my parents played the records and all, but to see these performers, to see the audiences, uh, just the, the, uh, the interaction of the general public with some of these performers, uh, you know, Joan Baez and her youth and, and Bob Dylan is this kind of dorky charismatic star, just kind of standing up with his guitar with this mobs of adoring people just hanging on his every word. There's just something really uh, beautiful and innocent and, and at the same time also kind of provocative and, and revolutionary going on here. And I just love how these, these early music documentaries just kind of capture what turned out to be these really significant cultural developments uh, as they were happening and then put them together in this nice little digestible package which even if you just want to put it on as background music is just such a such a delight such a treat just to enjoy the music and the vibe and the and the atmosphere that it creates all right so let's go ahead and kick it back to the top of the list there jordan give us your number two my number two another controversial pick i think um I'm I'm with everyone who is a little bit disappointed that this couldn't have been a meteor release. Um, felt like this was just as big a deal as as Blow Up um, or uh, any of the other you know releases that really got the prestige treatment like Barry Lyndon. Um, but Stalker was put uh, into the collection, and even though some of the supplements are uh, or most of the supplements have been uh, you know packaged before, they're good. They're really good. In fact. Um, as uh as as lo-fi as i think the original elements are they look they look pretty nice um they've been cleaned up just like the film itself i'm not too wild about the cover i'm not too wild about the new supplement they added but the film itself just is enough for me it's it's one of the most you know magical tricks of cinema in my opinion you know it's it's monumental thorny completely immersive uh, one of tarkovsky's absolute best films um I, I I I get so involved in not just like how how luscious that visual experience is, you know, the the location shooting and these unbelievable dilapidated spaces in Estonia and the set design and the cinematography, the use of color, the that that potent patient pacing that Tarkovsky uses is is all by itself that is pure cinema. And then on top of it you get that cerebral experience of what is desire? And and what does it mean to pursue one's desire and question even if you even know what you want and if you discover what you really want what does that do to you and what does that do to the people around you um, you know who built which idiotic illusion for whom it's it is just a film that lingers with you or at least lingers with me like forever I, it's eternally rewatchable and and they did a beautiful job on the transfer and like I said that's enough for me to put it at number two. Very nice. Well, obviously, this was a this was a big one. This was a, a title that galvanized a lot of people's attention, and I'm sure it probably did pretty good business. Yeah, there are some quibbles over what it might have been, but 
you know, let's face it, Tarkovsky, getting Tarkovsky on Blu-ray has been a huge uphill struggle for for a long, long time. And so we are thankful for what we got. I also want to All hopefully right. that, uh, Trevor ahead. and I discussed this film at uh, yes. some length on an episode of Criterion Cast and was a very fun episode of navel gazing and like, well, this could be this. <laughs> this could be anything. I don't know, man. It, I really uh, enjoy talking about that. If listeners haven't listened to that, well, watch the film first and then listen to yeah. it. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely put that link in there. Anybody else want to weigh in on Stalker? Well, okay. how can I not? It, it, it really is. It probably should be on my list, but it, it really probably is the supplements that kicked it off. But you're right, Jordan. The transfer is is the selling item there, and it's it's beautiful, 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 beautiful. So, you know, I just consider it on my list, too. And off mic, Trevor, we got to talk about that last scene. I have some I have some thoughts about that, too. Ooh, Okay. That's I'm looking enticing. forward to it. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Eric, let's go ahead and get your number two. Yeah. So my number two is Kanoa, A Shameful Memory. And this is a situation where I don't know if I would have seen this film. Um, I mean, eventually I would have because I'm watching all of them. But I, I saw it very uh, around the time of its release because I wrote about it for Criterion Cast. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll put my, my, uh, writings on that in the show notes or whatever, but if uh, you can go and read it, although I am going to repeat most of that here, <laughs> but I really enjoy, uh, that process uh, of sort of, you know, we all struggle, I assume with choosing what to watch on any given night. And sometimes when something just gets pushed upon you and you really know nothing about it, and then it just kind of absolutely knocks you over. It's, it's such a, a, a great, uh, moment. And this is also another film where I think that the, uh, much like black girl, where the supplements really uh, took the the whole proceeding up a level, although it it was great even without that. There aren't a lot of supplements on this disc, but um, I'm a big fan of you know quality supplements over quantity supplements. And there's a, a hour long conversation on this one between um, Alfonso Cuarón, who is of course also represented in the collection, Itumama uh, Tambien director, and Felipe Casals, the um, director of this film, that really provides a ton of context. So. Um, this film is uh, from Mexico, which is also something that is not well represented in the collection. Up until this point, I think we only had the the 1930s um, one from the World Cinema Box set that I'm blanking on the name of right now, but that um, wasn't even made by Mexican directors. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, thank you, Aaron. And um, uh, this film is uh, phenomenally interesting to me, both uh, in terms of the history around its release, but also the film itself. So just talking about the film itself, it's one of the more interesting sort of horror, thriller, suspense films that I've ever seen. It just comes completely out of nowhere. And it it does it all by first revealing in the opening crawl, like the entire story of what's going to happen. And it's because it's a true story, but you know exactly what is going to happen. And the rest of the film sort of has it happen and it does it in such a way that, I mean, I was really like, a nervous wreck by the time that this film finally ended. And I'm not, that is not a, a usual experience for me. Um, it, it's kind of like a weird cinema verite documentary mixed with thriller and horror. It's, it's really unlike pretty much uh, any uh, film I've, I've ever seen. It, it mixes so many different styles and, and genres in, in su- such interesting ways. And then from the supplements to learn that this uh, true story, it, it was a, a small massacre that took place two weeks before a major student massacre in Mexico City in 1968 during sort of the 1968 world sort of run of events. Um, And that it was, uh, the film is absolutely about that bigger massacre. 
And one of the main architects of that massacre was the president of Mexico when this film went to the single-party censorship bureau and somehow got released and is absolutely just a commentary on its society and a commentary on sort of religion and mass hysteria and mass fascism, all of which I think are sadly extremely relevant today. This film is very, very relevant to what's happening in the United States in 2017, to my mind. And just that it exists at all, that it was released, that we have it, I just feel so uh, fortunate. And again, that sort of uh, new information about a place I don't know as much about as I wish I did. And all of it kind of comes together. And I, I just, I, I have a feeling that not a lot of folks have checked this one out just because I think it kind of flew under the radar. And for me, that's that's a really, really a shame. This is a, a phenomenal discovery for me. And I, I really hope more, more folks check it out. I've heard nothing but great things about this film. It has uh, kind of not been off my radar. It just hasn't really worked its way into the mix, but you <laughs> have created a lot of intrigue with your comments there, Eric. So right thank you for uh, <laughs> kind of, well, just kind of representing it. Cause you know, that is one of the, the great things about criterion. I mean, there are those, you know, Barry Lyndon's and stalkers that people have been kind of panting and gasping for, 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 for many years, but then there's these discoveries and, they can kind of really give you a good kick in the ass sometimes when it's like, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and I'm really glad that they kind of pulled that out of the archives and put it there right up with the, with the heavy hitters and the, the commercial bestseller. So yeah. Yeah. They have such a wonderful platform for that. I love when they do it. You know what I mean? They, they really can push something forward in world cinema history. And I really love when they do that. It seems Very like good. every year they also do have at least one or two uh, out of nowhere discoveries. I think Il Sorpasso a few years ago. Yeah, uh, a great uh, one. Lonesome uh, before that. Uh, I think this the is executioner probably, was uh, like, oh yeah, well, from yeah. last year. Yeah. So I think this is one of those from this year. Uh, yeah, really, uh, yeah, horrific and stunning, but uh, but also uh, invigorating in a way. Great yeah. film. Mm-hmm. Why don't you take it from there, Aaron? What's your turn number two? Well, mine is uh, pretty big. Uh, so mine is Martin Scorsese's World Cinema Project, Du. Uh, and, of course, I was a, a big fan of the first one. I, I don't know the, that the community shared my enthusiasm. I, I, I really like uh, – I, I, what was the uh, – why am I forgetting it now? Um, the, uh, uh, not Rita's, but uh, oh, Dry Summer. And, of course, uh, The Housemaid and Tukibuki. Uh, but I, I think this this edition really, I think it it ramped it up a little bit as far as the uh, I, I guess the star quality. I mean, as far as any, uh, I guess world cinema can be a star quality. But I think um, I think Edward Yang is is now considered at least in our circles a top tier director, and really Taipei Story is really the anchor for the set. Uh, just a gorgeous piece of filmmaking. It's now his third in the collection. Uh, may, maybe that doesn't measure up quite as well to uh, Yee and um, and um, <laughs> brighter, summer, brighter day. Summer, summer day. Yeah, but, but it's pretty close. It's it's quite a, a a film for a young filmmaker. And of course, there's also other films. Limite was really um, more experimental, but was also very dazzling um, and really, I guess, innovative filmmaking that I, I don't really think, uh, except for maybe some experimental filmmakers uh, in, in the silent period and or the or the early sound period really um um borrowed but um and then nciang uh and then there's of course uh there's a pitch pong weird aesthetic call which i can now say um it's, <laughs> it's it's just a really great set uh, and actually and there are nice features as well so um so yeah i was very happy with this one i i did yeah um hopefully there'll be a third one coming 
you hate to see a volume one without a volume two behind it. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> I'm really glad that they kept the series alive. And this is an extremely handsome edition. It's a nice uh, kind of dual format, kind of keeping that little uh, tradition alive as well. Right. But you're did. right; these these are really important films, obscure and rare, um, but very well curated. And I'm really appreciative that they're they're pressing ahead with this one. And Aaron had a great episode on Limite, and that's actually, I watched it after listening to your discussion, and yeah, totally right about that film. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I think Law of the Border, that's one that I've actually blogged about a couple of years ago. It's a Turkish film. I think they have, like, the one surviving print, and it's it, it really is. I mean, it's just like this thing that would have been completely lost, and now it's getting this, you know, kind of marquee preservation presentation, and uh it just it just tunes you into a you know a huge massive part of the world that just doesn't you know kind of come up on the cultural radar until there's some kind of a you know unfortunate event whether it's a terrorist attack or an earthquake or or something but it's like you know these are these are this is powerful cultures and traditions and and important passages that are being documented here and and it's it's just to our own benefit to understand what else is happening outside of even the very complex cultures that we inhabit or focus our attention on from a distance. So excellent. Yeah, this is definitely one that needs to be called out and, and recognized as one of Criterion's most significant offerings of uh, 2017. All right, Trevor, your turn. All right. Well, once again, I'm kind of, you know, all that talk about discoveries and all, I'm feeling a little bit sheepish <laughs> for my choice for number two. But I'm going back with the old familiar again, something that I've lived with for years, and it is Richard Linklater's The Before Trilogy. Um, I love these movies so much, and I love the the settings, I love the dialogue, I love their conversations about time and memory and their dreams for the future uh, as they walk around in 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 all these different cities over in, in Europe. It's just a, it's a beautiful uh, love story drawn out over the decades. And I am just a little bit younger than Jesse and Celine, but I feel like I approached each of these films at about the right time in my life. I remember watching uh, be- Before Sunrise uh, when I was uh, in college and really enjoying it. And my wife and I actually met in London and went on tons of excuse me, went on tons of walks together and even would go into record stores and, and bookstores and listen to music together, just like Jesse and Celine do in, in the first movie. So the, there's just something special about that time of life that's captured so beautifully in the first movie. And then I love in the second movie, them coming back together, years have passed, nine years have passed, and thinking about where their lives have gone and the lives that they have still in front of them. And finally coming back together again in a place where they feel like they belong. And then, you know, my wife and I have now been married for 12 years. And the the third movie takes us about that time in Jesse and Celine's marriage where they're, you know, they, they, they've lived now. A lot of the dreams that they had for themselves have either come to fruition or the pathways to those dreams are starting to disappear and not be there anymore and them just kind of dealing with these stages. And uh, again, remarkably well done with the whole passage of time. This isn't just a movie that happens to show actors aging and, and not aging. It captures the time periods. It captures these these relationships in, in such a, a real way for me. And there's just so many moments in them that I've, that I've come to love. 
So this is uh, the old familiar, my number two of the of the year. Well, I'll I'll kind of go a little bit out of turn. I know Scott's kind of in the order of things, but I I also picked this as my number two of the year. So I'll be Captain Obvious along with you too, Trevor. Um, yeah, it's interesting because <laughs> because I I am actually uh, older than Celine and Jesse. Uh, in 1995, when uh, the first film came out, I was already 11 years into my marriage, and I actually had actually never seen any of these movies until the box set came out. But Julie and I sat down to watch them. Uh, I think it was back, oh, probably fairly soon after they were released. Not at, like it wasn't like a first day purchase or anything, but it was, it was fairly soon. I was like, let's check this out, and I was just incredibly moved by the emotional journey that this couple went through. And even though uh, you can probably almost say there's a generational difference between uh, me and my wife and and the couple at at the heart of these stories here, uh, the passages they go through and the the phases of of trust and, and, you know, betrayal and recommitment and, and just all those things that happen over the course of a life lived together. Uh, you know, Julie and my story doesn't necessarily mirror theirs I and mean, we've, we've stayed married and, and we've raised our kids and all of that. But, you know, I, there was just so much heart in this film. And, and of course the, the aesthetics of it are all quite, quite enticing and, and really enjoyable. And I think it was just, again, kind of going back to which films kind of created the, deepest emotional resonance and uh those nights that you know, she and i spent watching these films and then to even dig it into the supplements and understanding a little bit about the craft of putting these films together and and uh you know the continuity of, of taking several years between films and and then putting it back together and, and evolving the story in some new ways it was just a, a really beautiful experience uh, as well as emotionally gripping and occasionally harrowing because <laughs> some of the uh Kind of, kind of in some like of some of the Bergman esque scenes where, you know, the, the the dialogues and the arguments and the kind of shredding comments that uh, lovers make um, out of the depths of their pain toward each other when everything's coming to a full boil. It's like, wow, you know, it just kind of it kind of hit home. And uh, so, yeah, I just really appreciated the the rawness and the integrity and the candor of of putting these scenes on film and giving I'm sure many, many couples around the world a lot to think about and reflect on in their own relationships. And, uh, that is, that is the power of great cinema. All right. Well, Scott, do you want to go ahead and give us your number two then? Yes. My number two is the Marseille trilogy. Um, I hesitated a bit in even picking this up in the first place. Uh, I watched tons of films from the 1930s. It's a wonderful, wonderful decade. Can't always say that the films from the early 30s are uh, what I would call briskly paced, but their saving grace is usually that they run about 80 minutes or so. So <laughs> even if you start to get bored, you know, it, you don't really have too long to go. So I was a little bit cautious about getting into two hour plus movies uh, from this time period. But in the end, you know, uh, French films are bit of my bag i know aaron feels similarly and i had to at least check them out so i picked this up at the half off sale put in the first film and was instantly hooked and just blew through these like nobody's business uh i completely fell in love with these films they're so incredibly well written and well performed uh for those who don't know they're based on at least the first two are based on stage plays that um were then adapted to screen with pretty much the same cast involved all up and down the line so these were 
actors who had really lived with the roles for a long time and really knew them inside and out. Uh, and even though they're working with the film director as opposed to the stage director who brought them up originally, uh, I think, especially on the first film, Alexander Corder really found a, a great cinematic language to bring them to the screen in a way that never made them feel stagey, but was very true to the theatrical roots. You know, I mean, there's long passages of just people talking and often in one or two shots for whole scenes, but the way he stages them is so dynamic and interesting and they're so well-performed. And I mean, I really could just, couldn't go, could I could just go on and on with superlatives about these three films, which were deeply moving. You know, I mean, the supplements are a little thin, I think, on the whole. I haven't gone through all of them. It's too bad that there's not, I think, more scholarly work about the films themselves. A lot of kind of background stuff, um, but that's fine. The films themselves are a real treat, and I was just, I couldn't have been more pleased with the set. I only got into the first one. I figured I could not go into this episode without having really sampled the the pleasures. And I know, Aaron, you've recommended this to me, and this is one that I think probably my wife and I would enjoy. We actually did watch Marius, and I, I really found the characters quite amusing. It's it's clearly an actor's showcase, and and this the uh, the kind of the eccentricities and the personality and the flair of these, uh, you know, just of these unique uh, uh, personas out, out on the Marseille waterfront and the the. The, the local life of this little community is, is quite enchanting and definitely eager to dig into the rest there. So uh, one of those things where probably down the road, this is, this is probably a set that might rank up right at the top of the, of the heap for me. I just haven't had a chance to get into it, but I definitely looks like one of the more impressive offerings that criterion put out there as well. Okay. Well, fellas, it's time to, get to the top of the mountain here uh, our number ones of the year this is it this is where we kind of lay it on the line and stake our critical and <laughs> intellectual <laughs> reputations uh will will the fan mail or the hate mail come in well we'll have to wait and see what the masses think about that so okay with all that said jordan we're going to get to be the honors of picking off your uh number one criterion release your favorite of 2017 i'm getting my star wars toys out um, <laughs> as long as you're not potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, uh, maybe like um, Arik's discovery of Kanoa, my number one is a, a film that I did not see coming um, in terms of being, you know, my favorite uh, film of the year from Criterion. Um, and it's Camera Person. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's a very new film, came out in 2016. It's currently on Filmstruck with all of the supplements. Um, the supplemental package is extraordinary. And it's kind of a case study in what the virtues can be of Janus Films being the inaugural theatrical distributor because they were they were kind of with the filmmaker from the beginning here. Um, and the filmmaker's name is Kirsten Johnson. She has been working uh, professionally as a cinematographer for over 25 years on documentaries. Um, bunch of different directors, including Michael Moore, um, including Laura Poitras. And this is her first directorial um, effort. But it's a very interesting um, project for her because it, it kind of falls into the category of a an assemblage film. Um, in the process of, of course, shooting documentaries, you accumulate an enormous amount of material. And through a very laborious process of of finding your film, most of what you shoot ends up on the editing floor, much more so than in a um, a narrative film. And you know she's 
she's a cinematographer um like a like a chivo you know like she she thinks so strongly in terms of visual composition that you know her leftovers are are brilliant so this is a this is a thing that she put together of basically scraps you know over 25 years of making films there's over 24 films that these these scraps are cold from along with some new material mostly diaristic stuff from her life and the the places range from you know Nigeria Yemen Kabul Bosnia Darfur there's a lot of political films in her in her catalog Guantanamo Bay a lot of stuff in the United States and it's it's an experiment in in not only how quickly as an audience we can we can fall into someone's life and find their life fascinating when only seeing like a, a quick glimpse of it. And she does revisit different parts of stories. Not all of them. Some of them we only see once and then and we move on. Um, but it doesn't, it's not lost. There's, there is a actual film here. Um, it is not this, some kind of like formless experience. And in some of the supplements, she talks about how she eventually arrived at this version of things, which can then ask questions like, well, what are the leftovers from this project of leftovers? It, creatively, there's a lot of exciting questions you can ask about, you know, how do we commit to this this quality of doneness? Do we have to accept something as a as a final creative vision? You know, and what are the things that are generated by a creative act? What are these relationships and those the hazards of those relationships? The, all of these things unfinished, including the urge to understand, which lingers especially in the mind of someone who does all this traveling to these dangerous, chaotic places uh, where where people are suffering and where sometimes you're intervening as a documentary filmmaker. Um, and you go, you know, her version of describing that that grappling with that struggle is sometimes you do the most decent thing and sometimes there's still repercussions to that. And the film in its in the way that it personally dresses her life, I won't talk about the specifics of that incredibly moving. Um, and because it is really about her work primarily as a cinematographer, other things that it brings up are you know, <laughs> what are those moments that are cut from a, a final product just because the hand of the filmmaker is present? So it's just like a boom falling into the shot you have to cut or, or crop. And this film tells you immediately that those are the moments that it's mostly interested in. Um, in the opening sequences of the film, you literally see Kirsten's hand reach in front of the camera and pick out pieces of grass to get a cleaner frame, um, and then, and then she she'll sneeze or she'll or she'll uh, she'll laugh or she'll sigh or she'll gasp. Um, those are moments that that kind of define her presence in the film because she's not visually in it very much. She's behind the camera. Um, but it, in it terms does get of into like, some of her personal life and there's those mm -hmm. scenes with her mother and everything. I mean, it really is a very well-rounded portrait of the creative process and a woman yes. who puts herself almost like in danger uh, and has just had an incredible series of life experiences. It, it was pretty breathtaking. I agree. And it's a stunning film. And I, and I, I wrote about it for Criterion Cast earlier in the year. And it, it seems like uh, yesterday it's uh, another aspect that I, that really moved me is there are a, a set of eyes behind the camera and this is a profession where you see a lot of things and there's a toll of those things uh, that take, that's taken on a person. And I think the way this film was cobbled together and then interspersed with her personal uh, memories, it's really one of the most personal and, and, and beautifully personal films I've ever seen. So, um, so yeah, a great choice. Uh, I guess because of the supplements, I, I didn't choose it, but you know, it's a, it's a great year. So, uh, love right this on. film. Yeah. I wanted to, um, 
uh, also, I guess I'm now fourth on the list of saying this is a great one. Um, uh, for me, what was, uh, and you kind of touched on this a little bit, Jordan, what, for me, what was most interesting about it was sort of thinking about the role that someone who goes into these kinds of situations has in the sense that um, they, they kind of uh, parachute in, document these awful, awful things. And as she is very candid about, then leave. <laughs> and they don't really do they do anything good for these people? Is the attention good? Yes, probably, but they don't do anything else. I, I don't know. Just thinking about like the, the, the me sitting on my couch eating chips. You know what I mean? Watching mm. this suffering all around the world and 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 not knowing what I'm supposed to do about it, and, and just seeing it. it was really an interesting, um, intense experience for me, and kind of uh, started me on a long process that I'm still on. Of well, didn't start, but it was a. a um, a signpost on a long process of thinking about kind of what the responsibilities we have to the world uh, being so unbelievably fortunate to have been, um, a born raised or whatever in, in, a in, in, in a luxurious, you know, in, in a, in a, um, relative luxury. And, and so like something like this, which, you know, or war photographer, if you've ever seen that one kind of, um, yeah. brings that point up to me very strongly. I thought it was a very interesting, fascinating, um, release. Yeah, what do you do when when you are someone who has that instinct to better the world and better the world through your art? And just one small anecdote from the film, like when she's in that hospital in Nigeria and she realizes after the fact that just her presence there has diverted resources that are needed elsewhere in the facility because they're performing for the camera. And she maybe saved that woman by getting the blood and she maybe elevated the status and and the health of that single family unit. But then that hospital was flooded with people after they left thinking that they had these different expectations for what could happen to them in this hospital and yeah, just change yeah. the way uh, Johnson put it, change the whole ecosystem. Yeah, it's a, it's it's crazy. It's crazy to think about. Yeah, the ethical gravity of these decisions. It's like it's like being in wartime where, you know, you're making a decision to save one life, but it's going to cost other people their lives. It's just it, mind boggling. So. Excellent conversation. I really, really appreciate your insights, uh, all you guys. Uh, thank you, for Jordan, for that uh, very excellent selection. Okay, Arik, it's your turn to uh, let the superlatives begin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get the... Uh, uh, let's through, all through... see if we can top, top each other. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you, yeah, you get to start the parade. What's exactly. Through, through scheduling reasons, I get to be the first one to talk about this. Uh, my number one for the year is is the 100 Years of Olympic Films box set. Um, I... Uh, I find it fascinating, by the way, I just want to throw this out there, that uh, they, they do the, a similar process to this on the Criterion Forum uh, as a sort of um, a thread, and a lot of people chose this one as most uh, pointless <laughs> release by that. Criterion, which just, <laughs> I, I'm just like, you, what yeah, is your damage? But anyway, um, <laughs> like, who hurt you? Like, what's going on? But. Uh, but so so I am um, I'm absolutely an unabashed Olympic junkie, first of all. So this set, the minute they mentioned it, was always going to be high on my list. I love Tokyo Olympiad. I love anything. I, when the Olympics come around, I drop everything I'm doing and basically binge watch it for those uh, couple weeks. But beyond that, this is such an incredible treasure trove of resources of so many. I mean, it goes all the way back to 1912 in Stockholm. I mean, just the 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 incredible breadth of this set that how i mean i'm currently uh, i've been watching it pretty aggressively and I'm, I'm i just finished uh the the first of the two 1928 amsterdam films Ooh. and and yeah yeah and <laughs> you even guys are at, tracking right exactly yep and even at this point uh 
it's just the amount of incredible, interesting, fascinating, you know, the, the films are not all great. I'll, I'll be very, very upfront about that. But the resource to get to see so all of this stuff in, in just one place is just so overwhelming to me. I mean, to watch the 1912 one and look at a, a, a parade of nations that reflects a world that simply does not exist anymore, mm-hmm. right? That this pre-World War One set of countries, many of which are not around anymore. And even in, in 28, you know, you're seeing flags that you don't recognize, country names you don't recognize. Like, it's, it's so interesting from a historical point of view. It's also interesting from a film development point of view. It's interesting from an athletic point of view. Some of this stuff like the white uh, stadium is truly beautiful. Mm. Um, we get some, you know, dark periods of history, some light periods of history. We get so many different visions. I mean, I'm, I haven't even gotten to any of the, you know, I mean, I've seen Tokyo Olympiad, but any of the really famous, you know, uh, visions of eight or any of the, you know, Milos Foreman or, 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 uh, you know, Kony Chikawa or, or, or whatever, all of this stuff is, is still in front of me. And just like, the vast, I mean, much like with Zatoichi, they dump one of these box sets on you and it's just like, can you even comprehend a hundred hours of film and then the book and the packaging and I mean, everything, I just feel so fortunate that I have this thing in my house. It's like almost like the definition of what Criterion does for me, where I just can, at any moment I can go to one of these films. It's, it's, it is, it is absolutely, and I'm, you know, I'm probably in the top 1% of people who would be interested in an Olympics box set, but even if you're not an Olympics junkie specifically, you know, some of the films are going to be a little rough for you, but there's so much here to discover, even for someone who does not care at all about sports or at all about the Olympics or, or whatever. I mean, there's just so, so much here. Uh, it is, it is fascinating. So yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Cause I know that we've got several other people who are going to be talking about the same, <laughs> but I, um, I love it. I love it. Well, it's it's All not right. a competition, but I'm a little further ahead of Arik. Oh no! <laughs> in the race, <laughs> so yeah, I'm 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 with you. It's my number one as well. I, I is it my turn? Yeah, I think it's my turn. It um, is. Go for it. It's my number go for one. the gold. <laughs> uh, yes. So I like you. I've I've been sort of transfixed by this disc, and I, I just find myself putting uh, putting disc in after after disc. And I've um, so yeah, the, the seven and a half hours of uh, Amsterdam. I, I've been there. <laughs> it's a marathon. It's uh, <laughs> it, it's quite a lot of footage. It, it's it feels like you're re- reliving the Olympics. But uh, this is just a monumental set, and um, and I, a lot of what Eric says uh, stands out. I, I think the films are pretty good. I think the white stadium is the high point so far but actually even 1912 stockholm i, th- I think is just uh well first off the film restoration is just it looks incredible like, i know it's stunning and um and uh, sure some vary i think the 24 was okay all the 28 looks pretty good uh well I, the first 28 looks pretty good the white stadium looks great just you know 30 40 minutes of just gorgeous scenery uh, just beautiful silent footage of and of course, there's plenty to come. I, I still have the, the the propaganda films, and then we have all the color. And I, I know you sampled some of those, David. Um, yeah. I'll also point out that the the scores are amazing, um, and and they they kind of fit. Of course, these I'm still watching silent films, so I'm sure that there'll be nice graphics and voiceovers and commentators in the later discs. But uh, but the for the silent films, the scores really. Uh, it's hard to describe. They, they just fit the tone of the film, so uh, that you'll have uh, some upbeat. Well, not too many upbeat scores. They're all all, all kind of <laughs> <laughs> kind of lulling. But uh, but it's it, it's been a very peaceful set to watch, and uh, and you know some of the sports won't be for everybody. I, I I'll confess that I've skipped the yachting. I, I just 
you know, boats on water, it just doesn't do much for me. But uh, the swimming and also just seeing this is history, whether you uh, whether it's your your taste of history or not. I mean, this is uh, Nurmi, for example, is a famous runner and you get to see him in his uh, his element. And then you also see how things were done back then. So uh, as Arik alluded to with the cl- uh, with the um, the different aspects of history, the first Olympics were basically uh, first world countries and uh, and a lot of the quote athletes were people that wore nice clothes and uh, and the crowds were people that uh, that all wore hats and uh, and came yeah. to, out in their in their best so um, and then later you would see other nations uh, participating but uh, but still you know the world's changed and uh, and I yeah. think as as we progress on this project we're going to see that uh, you know, that that progression with it and you know I, I Having experienced some of these Olympics, my, I was at the '96 Olympics, so I, I, it's a little close to me. And of course, I lived in in uh, the Bay Area during the um, the '90 or I'm sorry, the '84, I think. So yeah, I, I can't wait to tackle the rest of the set. I, I was hesitant to put it at my number one, having only seen uh, I don't know about 15 hours, <laughs> but I, it well it just well dabbling deserved. in it, yeah, just, just dipping your toe in. <laughs> it's going to be well, finished soon, yeah. Well, it is it is a completely magnificent um, experience, and and I, I've been the kid in the candy store. I've just jumped all over the place with this thing. So I have watched most, uh, pretty much all the early <laughs> stuff that you yeah, that you've discovered or discussed. But um, you know, the nineteen forty eight uh, St. Moritz in London in Technicolor is eye poppingly gorgeous. It's it's got this kind of surreal, you know, kind of. Uh, I would like like those Douglas Sirk films. It's just it's just mm-hmm. dazzling and it's just wonderful. Uh, Nineteen seventy six. James Coburn is this kind of you know badass narrator. Uh, Franz Klammer, a Rick Wakeman score with synthesizers, prog rock. I mean, you're getting the flavors of all these different decades infusing this this um, this exercise, this coming together of the nations. And and you're right, the early Olympics are kind of this gathering of the aristocrats, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you definitely see, uh, you know, you don't see very many dark, well, you don't see any dark-skinned people in the first few Olympics. And then the world begins to integrate a little bit. And, and you see the, the the politics and you see the uh, the technology. You, you see the athletics. I mean, you, you, you know, some of the techniques are just amazing. Pole vaulters who just land on the ground. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's crazy. How are they not hurting themselves? <laughs> It's, it's oh amazing. my gosh! Right, right. And, and and the high jumpers, and you see the different techniques. Guys who are literally straddling the bar. You know, nobody's <laughs> discovered the Fosbury Jim plot Cotta. yet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's crazy. So so there is so much going on here. Uh, you know, the, the the early silent soundtracks by Donald Soson on the piano, very very nice, very evocative. Yes. He he knows how to weave in the, the various national anthems. You know, and and in the early films, you really do see a lot of focus on. The technique and the sports and the and and the physicality of the events themselves and as as the Olympics evolve and mature, you start to see the you know the the political side and the international spectacle and of course you've got the you know the evolution of the opening ceremonies and the the pyrotechnics and the the, the flamboyant festivities. It's just it's everything is there it's it's like the best of humanity not only the athletics but the the ethos you know the, the idea of international peace and cooperation and understanding and cultures coming together and respecting diversity i mean there is so much beyond just the 
sportsiness of it. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I understand. There, there, are, there are people who only know the Olympics through the multi-billion-dollar hyper-commercialized packages that are pumped at them every couple of years or so. And I totally get the the backlash and the avoidance of getting sucked up into this kind of, you know corny shtick uh, because the Olympics sometimes are presented that way. But you know what? Set some of that prejudice or bias aside and really understand these oftentimes really are just very ordinary people coming from really humble walks of life and who have dedicated themselves to something really special and really uh, individual. It's an expression of the body. It's the expression of the spirit and the soul of these people and uh, even even the people who don't meddle, even the people who barely finish the event, but they tough it out and they grit it through. I mean, Jordan and I talked about the Mexico film in uh, one of our early Criterion Reflections podcasts, and that guy finishing the marathon literally hours after everybody else had crossed the finish line, and he's just staggering, but he's got to finish this race. I mean, there's something incredibly noble and, and inspiring and, and breathtaking about that, and this this box is just you know it's just filled with riches and so it it is it is a very obvious pick it is kind of the sheer bulk and magnitude and immensity of it all but man you just cannot deny the power of so much of this footage uh and then you you know you got hitler <laughs> you've got george w bush you've got all these figures of history all making their appearances on this massive world stage and you're seeing really the 20th century unfold in front of your eyes. Uh, and then Peter Cowie writes a book on top of it all. I mean, it's just like, what is there not to absolutely adore about this set? Uh, I'll, I'll also just kind of uh, throw a little bit of a personal anecdote in here. I was, uh, you know, I've shared this in a few places. I had a chance to visit the Criterion offices in August of this past summer and uh, had a really beautiful opportunity to meet with Peter Becker for a couple of hours and and he was very eager and very pleased to show me some of the early uh, renditions of the book that was in progress and he showed me the video the promotional video that we've all you know been amazed by he he had just received it on his laptop computer earlier that afternoon and was very you know, <laughs> very tentative about showing us, and he swore us to secrecy. But I think the cat's out of the bag now, so I hope he doesn't regret me sharing it now. But I mean, just that personal connection to meet the man himself and to be right there within a couple of days after they had first made this announcement, and my ability to to chat with him about this astonished reaction that the Criterion fan base had to this, uh, you know, this amazing, uh, unprecedented. Uh, announcement and and then his anecdotes about working with the International Olympic Committee, which is you know a, a very powerful, very proud, even slightly arrogant group of people who they, they have the keys to this kingdom. That that the Olympics is a major deal within all of humanity, right? I mean, that's it, it's it's almost like a religion unto itself if you want to think about it in those terms. Uh, so for Really, what is a almost a little mom and pop outfit like Criterion for all the praise we leap, you know, we heap upon them? They really are a pretty small shop when it's all said and done. For them to connect with the IOC and to make this thing happen is, you know, I just I just give total respect to what they were able to pull off to maintain the secrecy and then to execute this this edition 
so completely brilliantly. I, you know, it's just, it's like, it justifies my fandom <laughs> is one way of putting it is like, yeah, I, I thought this was a pretty outstanding organization, a company, and they've just kind of really outdid themselves in, in putting this product on the market. So I'm extremely delighted to make this my number one pick of the year. Well, I think you guys are all braggarts. <laughs> yeah way to knock us down a peg jordan i appreciate that <laughs> no i can't wait to join you you know i was an early convert i not a sports fan so I, as i said on the reflection show like i was not really that excited to hear about this but then you know the mexico city olympics blew my mind and then i talked about visions of eight on aaron's show which blew my mind so yeah i cannot wait to join the club guys Christmas well don't you have it under your christmas tree jordan i do I do. Oh, I want see, to open that. <laughs> see, I don't. I don't even have it yet. I have a goal in mind, and when I reach it, I will. I will go pick it up. But I'll join you guys sometime too. Maybe if I'd actually seen every film I do own, I would deserve to open it early. But <laughs> come on, in. the water's fine. <laughs> Did you get to the Salt Lake Simpi- Salt Lake City Olympics, Trevor? When they were, or were you living in that area at that time? I wasn't in the air. I, I lived in Idaho, which wasn't too far away, but no, I didn't. My wife got to go to them and spend some time, and her brothers did some work for them. But no, I, I just stuck around up in uh, Idaho and enjoyed them on TV. <laughs> like the rest of us. Excellent. All right, Scott, well, let's go ahead and get your number one here. Oh, we're, 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 I'm jumping ahead. Sorry about that. Let's see, Aaron. I think Trevor, you are next. What is your number? I one? think so. Well, uh, following up on Scott's number two, my number one is the Marseille trilogy, and it struck me as I was sitting here talking about the Before trilogy, and even Barry Lyndon to an extent that obviously I must like stories that show a large passage of of time, <laughs> that shows you know a character with dreams and potential on the horizon, and then in the rearview mirror, and uh, that's definitely the case with my number one as well, the Marseille trilogy. Um, you know, I, just one of these beautiful experiences where I sat down to watch it with pretty high expectations, actually, because I do love, you know, as, 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 as uh, Scott talked about and as, as Aaron has been a proponent of, I love 1930s French cinema. I mean, some of those directors and some of those movies are really meaningful things in my life is, is meaningful to me as, you know, my favorite authors and favorite books and um, you know, just uh, favorite pieces of art in general. And the Marseille trilogy definitely deserves its place among them. It's just, it's a beautiful set of films that I really feel like a lot of these things the characters go through are my own real memories. I just really enjoyed spending the day with them and, um, and going through their struggles and their lives together as they did realize that love even doesn't, it's not as simple as ever after. And, and so the, the film goes into the difficulties hidden in happily ever after and really goes into the struggles that these, uh, especially that uh, Fanny and Marius have as they love each other, but also have other things tugging at them in their lives. And the just beautiful stuff. I mean, the films were made over five years, but they span a lot, much longer period of time in the characters' lives than that. And I just... Uh, Boy, I, 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 
I, I can't get the whole group together like you guys did for the Olympics box set to really kind of, uh, you know, get up, like David said, a nice parade of, of adulation. But I kind of <laughs> like to, to drum one up. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, these, you know, each film's two hours long. It just didn't feel like that to me. Um, they're films that I've already revisited once and I can see them. Uh, I can see myself revisiting them uh, over my life uh, for from here on out because they just... Really, you know, I, I want to go to Marseille uh, quite often and spend my time with these guys. Nicely said. Yeah, I, I think that's, I mean, it does. It's a very handsome addition. Like I say, I've only dipped into the first third of it, but uh, I know there's good things coming. So I'll, I'll join you in that appreciation a little further down the road. Okay, Scott, you are the man who gets to get the last word in. Uh, convince us who is your number one or what is your number one of the... Uh, of the year behind well with the admission that i have not seen and probably never will see the olympic box set just due to <laughs> sheer cost of it all maybe they'll turn up on film struck someday who's to say uh but for the time being uh my number one is uh orson welles othello i mean what's cooler than not only a shakespeare adaptation but a package with two adaptations of the same shakespeare play essentially you and just different... orson i mean yeah i, I like orson yeah. as a number one he he completely fits there go for it uh, yeah, you get two different versions of uh, Wells' 1952-55 adaptation of The Great Tragedy by Shakespeare, um, and just an unbelievable accompaniment of special features. The commentary track of the Finding Othello, or Film of Othello, rather, which is uh, Wells' last completed film, which is a sort of documentary-slash-commentary track on the film that's such a blast to watch. I mean, Wells <laughs> can speak endlessly as far as i'm concerned still be engaging i especially enjoy the section of him just dunking on college students at a q a there's really no reason for him to include that in the film other than to be like i am better than everybody and you know fair <laughs> enough man uh but I, the film itself too is really uh remarkable and really incredible and really engaging it's so brilliantly filmed i mean i talked a lot about uh wells and shakespeare last year on this episode in terms of his chimes at midnight uh, but Wells just knew Shakespeare inside and out, and he knew not only what made the grand drama uh, so thematically rich and what's carried it on as a great cultural legacy, but also so yeah, what makes Shakespeare just a blast to listen to and watch and engage in in terms of the acting and the drama and kind of the slightly pulpy side in terms of the violence as well and the carnal sin at the root of the story. It's a really great adaptation uh, by a guy who I, I think knew his fair share of jealousy throughout his life. Uh, but between that and getting two different versions of the film, getting filming Othello and getting all these other supplements, it's really kind of the ultimate package. Criterion has a way of kind of going all out when it comes to Wells, and this was certainly no disappointment in that realm. Uh, so yeah, it was an easy pick for my number one. Well, yeah. and such long anticipation, too. I mean, that's all the delays. Yes. I mean, that's kind of a legend in itself. <laughs> all the pushbacks of the release date. You, Aaron, well worth it, though. Well, we, we didn't do Best Supplement, but if I if we had, I would have said Filming Othello. Because I, I, I talk about using films as a podcast. I, I, I thought that that basically was a, a just engaging pod, visual podcast. It was... And uh, Orson Welles is just such an orator. And, and boy, just to spend... Uh, you know, another two hours with the man uh, is is just or an hour and a half. Um, so yeah, I, I love this. This was a, a great addition, well worth the wait. Uh, and I think filming Othello was what we were waiting for. So definitely worth it. Um, yeah, so good choice. You know, I said back when uh, on Criterion close up, Aaron, back when we did the Geek Fest, we we talked about Othello 
potentially coming to the collection. And I noted that it's not really one of my favorite film adaptations of Othello really? uh, or, or anything like that. But that I, I'm going to concede <laughs> that was I'm trying to correct the record here and concede that sometimes I'm just an idiot. Um, and so, you know, everyone should disregard that and listen to Scott, because not only do you get this, the great um, uh, film, but all of these supplements really helped me come around and look at it from different eyes and, and see a lot more than I was able to see beforehand. So, uh, and a lot of that Scott was because you had been pushing it on Twitter so much. So thanks for doing that and getting me to finally to say, fine, I'll watch it again. And really, enjoy <laughs> well, it. it's just such a sad story. I mean, I think with two versions, maybe one of them, he doesn't kill testimony. <laughs> <laughs> oh, spoiler. <laughs> <dude>. <laughs> And with wells, you know, even the dissolves are amazing. You know, most people use dissolves just for the, you know, the soft transfer of one moment to another. He layers them graphically, like use the, the his use of the way light layers over light and pattern over pattern. Amazing. Yeah, such a visually stunning film, and every every shot has has something interesting. So, yeah, great uh, year, guys. Yeah. yeah, well, I think we are at wrap-up time, and uh, I just really want to say I really appreciated the, the chat tonight. This was this is really rewarding. I always love doing these year-end episodes. We've got a pretty great archive going all the way back to 2010 when I was a guest on the uh, very first Criterion Cast edition of uh, kind of the year-end wrap-up. But, uh, yeah, you guys really knocked it out of the park tonight. I really enjoyed the insights. And the the rapport and the humor, and I really appreciate our listeners too. People who uh, tune in and support our our podcast and our website in so many different ways, uh, whether it's chatter on the social media groups or just you know whatever feedback you send our way, uh, we do completely appreciate. We we do it for you guys and and women, and and really just a chance to uh, you know celebrate these great films and appreciate them together. In, in all kinds of different ways. It's nice to have the occasional face-to-face meetups. It's really nice just to hear each other's voice and to share the passion that we uh, we all feel for uh, this great art and for the wonderful presentations that the Criterion puts, Collection puts together for us. So, yeah, any final comments you guys want to throw in there uh, before we wrap things up? I, I've really appreciated it and enjoyed the, the time together tonight. Very well said, David. Uh, it's, it's such a, a joy to, you know pre pre uh internet pre podcasting you know if you didn't know anyone who lived in your town or if you didn't know anyone you know that you were close friends with to talk about this stuff with it just was impossible and it's it's it is so rewarding and much fun to um to get to to geek out with uh with fellow geeks on any topic right so <laughs> it's um it's just great I, I i always so thoroughly uh enjoy this i enjoyed it before i was a part of it and i enjoy it uh, now uh, just as much if not more so yeah thank you as always for just uh, allowing me to be a part of it very good and thanks thanks for having me this year guys so honored to join the conversation this year and had a really good time talking to you guys super okay well folks we will be back with you sometime shortly after new year's day i'm going to try to get this thing mixed down and published uh maybe a little bit uh, down and dirty uh, without the necessarily the cleanup audio. We want to just get this out there, get it in circulation. We'll talk to you when that wacky uh, cartoon drawing comes out uh, on or around New Year's Day. We'll we'll sift through the clues and uh, try to gaze into that crystal ball and see what the CC has in store for us in the year to come. So thanks for listening, everybody, and we will be all coming at you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>